0: In the weeks that followed Lionel Crabbe's disappearance in Portsmouth Harbour, there were lots of theories as to what might have happened. And the most credible was that he ended up in the Soviet Union. You'll remember how Crabbe's wartime diving buddy, Sidney Knowles, was convinced he was going to defect. And there's Margaret Crabbe. She was sure her ex-husband was living in the Soviet Union. And there's also the claim from an unnamed Soviet officer that Crabbe was being held in a Moscow prison. And then, 50 years after Lionel Crab went missing, a very different story emerged from the Soviet Union. And once again, it's hard to know if it's true or false. It's centred on a man nearing the end of his life, a man named Edward Koltsov. In 2007, Edward Koltsov came forward and claimed to have been a KGB agent aboard Khrushchev's vessel back in 1956. More importantly, he was one of only two eyewitnesses who saw Krab on the morning he disappeared. There's quite a bit about Koltsoff online, even a photo, and he looks quite distinguished with thinning silver hair and an angular nose, and he's wearing a smart dark blue jacket. So I call up my researcher in Moscow, Marsha, my friend with the cropped hair and silver rings, ask if she can find out more about him, root around on the Russian language internet, stuff I can't access here in the UK.
1: Okay, um, no problem. I've got contacts in that world. So um, I'll do some digging and I'll let you know as soon as I find anything.
0: This is exactly what Marsha's good at, using her network of people in the know.
1: I am sure there will be something. Let me see what I can do.
0: Brilliant. You're an absolute star as ever. I
1: am. <laughs> OK. All
0: right, see you. see you. soon. Bye. And just a few days later, she gives me a call. She's got some information about Edward Koltsoff, the one who worked for the KGB. He
1: was a pensioner living in the Rostov North Caucasus.
0: You may have heard of it. It's a provincial city close to the Black Sea. We normally pronounce it Rostov, and if you look at photos it looks very Russian, all imperial mansions and onion-dome churches. And this Edward Koltsov, what did he do before he retired?
1: He previously worked as a bus driver.
0: But here's the odd thing about Koltsov. For years he said nothing about his time in Portsmouth Harbour, about what happened there
1: because this whole story, he was supposed to keep it as a secret.
0: But then one day in 2007, he's 74 years old by this point, he gives a single interview to a Russian TV channel called REN TV. This programme, it's all about Khrushchev's visit to Britain in 1956, about the disappearance of Lionel Crab, And at its heart is the interview with Koltsov. But there's a problem. This programme... It's vanished from the internet. It's certainly not on Russian YouTube, where most programmes end up. But Marsha loves a challenge, and she sets to work, and she calls me again a few days later, with triumph in her voice. She's found it. Marsha tells me she's soon coming to London. That way, we can watch it together. Before she ends the call, Marsha reveals something intriguing. This Koltsov she says in the interview he's got something on his mind something that's been troubling him all his life
1: so that he is old enough
0: he didn't want to take it to his grave because he wanted to come clean not only come clean but confess Edward Koltsov claims to know exactly what happened to Lionel Crab, and this interview he wants to make it his final confession But can he be trusted? I'm Giles Milton, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is cover-up season one, Ministry of Secrets, episode five, The Confession of Edward Koltsoff. In all the years I've been looking into the Lionel Crabbe mystery, I've come across many characters who seem to be implicated in some way. The hardest thing has been to work out who's reliable and who isn't. Who can you trust? Before we pick up the story of that Soviet pensioner, Edward Koltsov, I want to return to where we left off in the last episode, in the House of Commons, during a fiery debate about Lionel Crabbe in May 1956. On the very day when the Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, was facing that grilling about the fate of Lionel Crabbe, an unexpected figure was spotted by a journalist from the Daily Mirror. And this is what he subsequently wrote.
2: There was a silent figure in the gallery of the House of Commons last night. He was 54-year-old Admiral, the Earl Mountbatten, the first sea lord.
0: The Earl Mountbatten better known as Lord Louis Mountbatten, the head of the Royal Navy. And as he sits there in the public gallery, he's looking positively regal with his sweatback back hair, aquiline nose and piercing, aristocratic gaze. He's listening attentively to the words of the Prime Minister. I am
3: not prepared to discuss these matters in this house. <laughs>
0: The journalist from the Daily Mirror was less interested in the Prime Minister's words than in the presence of Lord Mountbatten. And in his article, underneath a huge photo of Mountbatten, he posed two questions.
2: Does Mountbatten know the answer? Is he the only man in the world who knows the full facts of the mission and the fate of Commander Crabb?
0: Those questions. Within days, newspapers were filled with stories and speculation about Mountbatten and they seem to be suggesting that he might not be trustworthy even though he's head of the navy. So who was he? If you watched the TV series The Crown, you may remember him from the first three seasons. He was a cousin and confidant of the young Queen Elizabeth, a father figure to Prince Philip, a surrogate grandfather to King Charles when he was still a young prince. They loved him and they called him Dickie. It was the family nickname. And Dickie, he'd become famous. Here he is in a TV interview he gave in 1969.
3: You now get recognised, go into a restaurant, you may get better service, but you also get people coming up with autographed books. You can't easily go into a theatre without people coming up. And, of course, one's inundated with fan mail.
0: So could he have had any connection to Lionel Crabbe? Well, Louis Mountbatten is one of the most extraordinary members of the royal family. This is Andrew Lowney, author, historian and best-selling biographer of Lord Mountbatten. He's got light curly hair, a kindly smile and a look on his face that suggests he's always willing to help out. And Lowney, he spent 30 years researching Mountbatten. He knows everything there is to know about him.
4: He had a separate career outside his royal duties, rising to be uh, the chief of combined operations during the war, to be Supreme Allied Commander of Southeast Asia, to be the last Viceroy of India, and eventually chief of defence staff.
0: In public, he was the very picture of the Whitehall
4: establishment. He seemed very authoritative. He always, you know, looked the part. In fact, that was why he went to India, you know, impressive in his uniforms, a great leader of men, very charming, uh, very good at getting people to work together, a great speaker. So that's the public figure. But what about the man himself? It turns out he had a hidden life. Well, that was a very complex man, but actually, uh, privately, he was a much more vulnerable and sensitive man. Uh, there were problems in his marriage. Uh, both he and his wife were bisexual. A fact that was not widely known. This was at a time when you would be thrown out of the Navy if you were found to be homosexual. Uh, and so he had this dark secret that he carried throughout his life, but he was protected by the Navy. This was his big secret a secret he kept
0: hidden. And this perhaps was not so difficult, because gay sex, though illegal, was commonplace in the Navy. Mountbatten's secret was not an uncommon one. So Mountbatten's bisexual, and as I've said earlier, Lionel Crab is bisexual too, and they were both in the same small world of Navy special ops in the Second World War. So I can't help wondering if Mountbatten knew Crab. Could he have been involved in Crabb's diving mission in Portsmouth Harbour? And on the face of it, it all sounds credible. But there's nothing to prove his involvement. And what's more, Mountbatten categorically denied any connection with Crabb's disappearance. So I go back to Andrew Lowney, Mountbatten's biographer, and I ask him, is there any sort of paper trail that implicates
4: Mountbatten in the Crabb affair, that links the two men? You would have thought he kept everything. He kept his school reports from the age of four. So why is there nothing relating to Crab? But it's very interesting that I, you know, the Mountbatten papers, there are thousands of of pages there and, um, there's no references to any of this Crab stuff. Lowney's
0: looked everywhere in those Mountbatten papers and diaries, 35,000 pages, and found nothing. And this is strange because Mountbatten kept a meticulous account of his life, recorded everything in his private diary. Yet there's not a single entry about Lionel Crabbe. Is Mountbatten's involvement in the Crabbe story yet another unfounded rumour? In all of this, who can be trusted to tell the truth?
3: This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast, where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations Knows, no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: In the last episode, we heard how the story of Lionel Crabbe's disappearance took on a life of its own, became the subject of a press frenzy. There was a great deal of speculation, but very few facts, and even fewer people you could trust. If there's someone out there who can be trusted, it's the word of a rational scientist, one who's investigated countless high-profile mysteries in the course of his working life, and many of them attracting huge media attention. He's called Dr Richard Shepherd, and he's Britain's leading forensic pathologist. His expertise isn't just dealing with a body on a mortuary slab. He also looks at facts and analyses the evidence, cuts through the rumours, fake news and conspiracy theories. They develop in a vacuum,
2: don't they? Always conspiracies. I seek, whenever I do a case, the truth as best as I can establish it.
0: Dr. Shepherd is in his late 60s with a gentle, reassuring voice. Yeah.
2: Cup of coffee, cup of tea.
0: One of those people who effortlessly inspires confidence. He looks like a regular guy in his short sleeve sports top and grey slacks. And he's got the steady hands of a clock restorer, which happens to be his hobby and passion.
2: London bombing. You know, we're, we're talking to people about what are the identifying features.
0: His study is filled with perfectly synchronised antique clocks for Dr Shepard, accuracy is everything. Dr Shepard's worked on a staggering 26,000 cases in the course of his career. 9-11, 7-7, that's the bomb attacks on London's public transport. He's worked on all sorts of cases, many of which gave rise to conspiracy theories. And Dr Shepard, he got to the truth of every one of them.
2: Thank you very much for asking me to think about this, because I, I knew about it.
0: Dr Shepherd knows a bit about the disappearance of Lionel Crabbe. So much of interest. Says it's strikingly similar to the most high-profile case he's ever done.
2: I suppose if I wanted to find an equivalent
0: in my career, it would be Diana. Princess Diana, killed in that fatal car crash in Paris on the last day of August, 1997. A short while ago, Buckingham Palace confirmed the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. I still remember waking up to the news. The princess died following a car accident in Paris. She was
2: 36. Now, in in that case, in fact, I was involved in the analysis of not just her death and her post-mortem, but of the car crash and the vehicle and peripheral spin-offs from that. Those peripheral spin-offs,
0: Dr Shepherd means the conspiracy theories. And in the case of Princess Diana, just as in the case of Lionel Crabbe, the press were clamouring for information. And in the absence of facts, well, they filled it with speculation.
2: Princess Diana's death wasn't an accident, as mystery. Diana was the pregnant at time of her death. Couple says, says twice that killed Princess
1: Diana was an establishment Diana thing.
2: Told of plot to kill.
1: Paris her. car she was travelling in when killed was a hugely dangerous rebuilt
2: wreck. Diana's rep. life could have been saved, says doctor.
0: And before you know it, conspiracy theories like these take on a life of their own. Because people love to speculate, and it no longer matters if they're true or false. Richard Shepherd again.
2: People love conspiracies because that's fiction, that's fun, and what the hell does it matter? You know, I, I can suggest this, and I have a bit of a laugh down at the pub, or on, now on Facebook or whatever. But you know, the ripples go backwards and forwards, uh, and can be damaging, can be hurtful, and sometimes just bloody irritating.
0: And with Princess Diana, just like the Lionel Crab mystery. The conspiracies got bigger and bigger. The different versions of the story were spinning dangerously out of control. And so it's 2004 and a special inquiry is launched and Richard Shepherd gets the call and he's given one goal, to get to the truth. And that's what he does. He examines everything, forensically, and his conclusions... This is Lord Stevens, who oversaw Operation Paget, the Princess Diana inquiry. I've asked an actor to read his words. I
2: want to emphasise that the report and the inquiry was all about looking at the conspiracy theories. There have been a number of allegations which have been unfortunate. Those allegations have been very hurtful. The verdict has been clear. There is no conspiracy in relation to this matter.
0: Those conspiracy theories about Princess Diana, they were all false. There were no plots, no assassination. She died in a car crash because she wasn't wearing a seatbelt. End of story. Dr Shepherd warns that the Crab case is even more complex than the Diana one, because the truth about Lionel Crab is being deliberately concealed. Whitehall has been covering up the truth from the word go, claiming Crab died during underwater trials in Stokes Bay. But this cover-up, says Shepard, might yet prove their undoing,
2: because there will be holes in their story. It is much easier to tell the truth with its complexities than to try and put a story together that is watertight, and as so many people have found, when you start to try and put a story together, it is incredibly hard to keep it secure and safe and challengeable.
0: Whitehall will have made mistakes. There'll be cracks in their cover-up, and inside those cracks, quite possibly, lies the truth. But let's go back to Lionel Crab himself, missing, presumed dead. Was he actually living in the Soviet Union, as his ex-wife said? Did he defect to the Soviet Union, as his best friend said? Was he being held in prison, as that Soviet officer said? Or is there another explanation for his disappearance? Does that Russian pensioner I mentioned earlier, Edward Kultsov, does he hold the clue to what really happened to Lionel Crabbe?
1: Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana, or is she just a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent, or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air, or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together.
2: It's the family that I suppose she's never had.
1: And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went
4: down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. Ah, that's Masha. That'll be Marsha. Hey, hello!
0: <laughs> it's been a couple of weeks since I spoke with Masha, my Russian friend, and now she's at my house. How are you? How was the flight? You don't want to know. When we last chatted on the phone, she told me about Edward Koltsov, the mysterious KGB diver, the one who was on Khrushchev's vessel when it sailed into Portsmouth Harbour in 1956. Who gave a single TV interview for a Russian documentary about his role in the Lionel Crab affair? How long is it? It's it's 45 minutes. Wow. And... Marsha's brought her laptop with its Russian alphabet keyboard.
4: Oh, there he is. Yeah, yeah.
0: And suddenly, it's as if Edward Koltsov is in the room. This
1: journalist also says that he appears very credible, like the way he talks.
0: He's got quite a high-pitched voice, but he speaks confidently, in a measured way, like he's prepared himself for what he's about to say.
1: He's very calm and and kind of not trying to, to prove anything, he just tells his story. This whole story is so weird.
0: I ask Marsha to rewind to the beginning, to start with the arrival of Khrushchev and his entourage in Portsmouth, to go through it line by line. (laughs) So what's he saying? Uh, That
1: it was important that only um, few people were aware that they were actually working for special services, and the rest of the crew, they um, had no idea.
0: Koltsov then explains how he woke early on the morning of Lionel Crabbe's dive, the 19th of April, was up long before dawn, and just as it was starting to get light, about 6 or 6.30 in the morning, he's summoned to the commander of the Soviet ship, the Orjonikidze.
1: He was given an order to dive because there was some strange activity in the water and there were some some noises, like banging, on um, on the...
0: Kind of, on the kind hull of the, of the ship. ship. And this is important because Koltsov is claiming that the diver in the harbour, whoever it is, is trying to stick a mine onto the hull of the Soviet vessel, some sort of time delay mine, to detonate as they were sailing back to Russia. This sends everyone on board the ship into total panic because they have to stop this crazy British plot urgently. So Koltsov, he's a trained diver, and he's in his wetsuit within seconds, arms himself with a knife.
1: And he dived and saw somebody in the water.
0: That person, he says, was swimming very close to the surface. And what happens next? Koltsov's a pro he doesn't mess around.
1: So he pulled him by the legs, he pulled him down. And then, after he cut his throat, he was a bit um, freaked out for a moment, thinking that he killed a child. This person was very small in statue, So he he thought for a moment that it was a child.
0: And it's true, Lionel Crab was small. He was only about five foot four.
1: But then, he says, then he saw the diver's face and saw his wrinkles Mm -hmm. and realised it wasn't a child, but a grown man.
0: So, Koltsov checks to make sure the diver's dead, which he is, and lets him sink to the bottom. And then he resurfaces and clambers aboard and everything goes quiet for a few days. It's like nothing ever happened. Because Khrushchev is still in London, And it's not until he's back in Portsmouth and has been debriefed about the incident that, well, he's full of praise for Koltsov.
1: He was rewarded for this assassination, but it was kind of kept a secret, so he wasn't even allowed to mention that he had this um,
0: reward. It was a medal, wasn't it? Um,
1: Not medals, It's it's Like an honorary
0: honorary sort of thing. So let's just recap a minute. According to Koltsov... He spots someone in the water, he jumps in and slashes his throat, kills him and clambers back aboard. But how do we know he's telling the truth? I mean, this random guy pops up from nowhere, confesses to a murder and makes it all sound quite plausible. So I get back in touch with Dr Shepherd, the forensic pathologist who worked on the Princess Diana inquiry. What claimed to be an ex-KGB yeah. professional diver, he claims to have. And seen I tell him about Koltsov's mysterious confession to have dived into the water, yeah. grab crab, by the and I can see he's already a frowning. Dagger, slash open his throat
2: and kill him. Well, I like that story. I think that sounds sounds per- I mean, to yes. Sorry, is that is that the end? Is that the end of it, Giles, or is there is there more excitement to come? <laughs> If you were taking on this case, this was the evidence you have been given, what would you be looking for? What would you examine, basically? I, I struggle with the practicalities of it. And I, I do like things that are relatively simple. And certainly my experience with all sorts of murders and killings and things like that is, you know, complicated ones really tend not to work well. And this is the moment
0: when Koltsoff's story starts to fall apart. Dr shepherd says if you want
2: to disable someone and you've got the advantage of surprise then you know sticking a knife several times into their chest is you know <laughs> does bugger your breathing a bit but why why cut the throat when um stabbing would would achieve much the same same end and then there's Lionel Crab's rubber diving suit and rubber hood layers of rubber make it harder particularly if they actually aren't fixed together if they move you know when you cut one it slides a bit across the top. So that would, that would make it harder. I, but once again, I wouldn't preclude it. How easy would it be to kill somebody underwater in the dark and in murky water? I mean, English waters are not known for their clarity and I would guess in a harbour, you know, with all of the shit that was pumped out into the harbours in those days. I mean, no, I, I, I think visibility would be almost almost nil.
1: In the course of your long career, did you come across these sorts of types, these fantasists, who come forward out of nowhere and suddenly announce their involvement in a story?
2: Yes, people do, for no good reason, insert themselves into the investigation. Sometimes the criminals insert themselves into an investigation, but other times fantasists roll up. It can be quite difficult sometimes to pick through and show that they weren't involved.
0: So, Dr Shepard's heard all the evidence and I ask him a final question.
2: How true does he think Koltsoff's confession is? I would say it's less than 10% likely to be true. It just, it doesn't really have the ring of truth. So, where does that leave the Lionel
0: Crab mystery? The endless rumours, the speculation, the media frenzy gripping the country back in 1956. Had Crabbe defected to the Soviet Union? Been captured by the KGB and was now languishing in a prison in Moscow? Was Mountbatten somehow involved in his disappearance? There's one obvious reason why all these stories have taken hold in the public imagination. And that's because in the weeks and months after Lionel Crabbe disappeared, his body was never discovered. There was no corpse, no evidence. Crab had simply vanished, and he'd done so without leaving a single clue. Next time on Ministry of Secrets. We'll be fast-forwarding to 1957, and everything we've heard so far is about to be blown apart by a sensational discovery.
3: Well, we were going down yesterday morning for a day's fishing and when we slowed up the engine I noticed this object floating in the water. Want the full story? Unlock
0: all episodes of Cover Up Ministry of Secrets ad-free right now by subscribing to The Binge, all episodes all at once. Plus, you'll unlock brand new stories dropping every month. That's all episodes all at once, all ad-free. Just click subscribe on the top of the cover-up Ministry of Secrets show page on Apple Podcasts or visit getthebinge.com to get access wherever you listen. Find out more about The Binge and other podcasts from Sony Music Entertainment at sonymusic.com forward slash podcasts. Cover-up Season 1 Ministry of Secrets is a Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment production. It's hosted and written by me, Giles Milton. The producer is Sarah Peters. The junior producer is Martha Miller. The production coordinator is E.K. Egbitola. Peggy Sutton is a story consultant. Jeremy Wormsley composed the original music with mixing and sound design from Peregrine Andrews. Isis Thompson is the editor and executive producer. With thanks to actors Ginny Fiol, Peter Temple and Dominic Frisby and Tuning Fork Productions.